Let's start with a prayer. Right. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the, the hearts, hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now at the hour of our death. Amen. Most sacred heart of Jesus. Have mercy on us. Immaculate heart of Mary. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Father. Thank you. So, uh, my name is Michael Becker, and I'm the Director of Operations here at Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Salisbury, and I am joined with our wonderful pastor, Father uh, John Eckert. And uh, this is our third session of question and answers that we have done. The first one was a recording um, that we did here in Father John's office um, that you can find on SoundCloud. The second one was actually a live event, which went very well. It really did. And I would just say uh, the next time we do it, which I think we're shooting for February. End of February, yes. End of February. Uh, make sure you come out uh, for the actual live event if you are in the Salisbury metropolitan area. Um, it was it was a great night. I want to say once again just a special thanks to the Catholic Daughters who provided the food and the Knights of Columbus who provided the drink and uh, just the 50 or so people who came out. And uh, Michael's mentioned it a few times. The uh, We had a high schooler who was there who said it was probably one of his favorite events we've ever done. Um, so, hey, all of our uh, you know younger listeners who are interested, make sure you come out, set some time aside at the end of February uh, for when we do this again. Yeah, family-friendly event. Young, old, kids, we'll take questions from anyone. Absolutely. So we hope that uh, you all will put that on your calendar. Um, and you can listen to the recording from that event, also on our SoundCloud account. And actually, the questions that we'll be answering today were the leftover questions from the that live Q&A that we did. So we really want to make sure we answer all questions that we get. And sometimes we have a couple uh, leftovers or a couple too many to get in that one event. So that's what we'll be answering today. And just in case you're one of the people who submitted the questions, uh, don't let the you know sometimes bad connotation of leftover be there. They're just as important as the originals. And I'm assuming they're going to be like like chili that's better you know when it has a little more time to age. Um, there are other things that are better as they age more, but let's just we'll just stick with the chili analogy. And Father had a little time to age too, so he's probably a little <laughs> bit wiser now to answer your question than he was about a couple months ago. And I do have a beard now, so that's kind of exciting. That, yeah. that makes me look more wise, or at least more lazy. <laughs> Either way, he will do a great job answering these questions, as always, I'm sure. Very, very kind of you to say. I haven't seen the questions, by the way. <laughs> yes, he has not seen the questions, so for everyone listening... At home, Father is answering these questions pretty cold. much blind, yeah. cold, however you want to say it. I have seen the questions, and I have <laughs> put them in an order that flows the best. So with that being said, are you uh, ready for the first question, Father? I hope so. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, so the first question reads, Before we had the altar rail and the opportunity to kneel to receive communion, we bowed before receiving. Do we still bow before we take our place to receive at the altar rail? Hmm. That's a good question. I think, um, you know, it kind of goes to, you know, personal pious practice. I, I would say it's never a bad idea to bow before receiving communion. Um, and I think sometimes, too, like when there's not the opportunity to kneel, a particular sign of reverence is definitely recommended. And, you know, bowing uh, somewhat profoundly uh, is a great thing to do, especially when kneeling just isn't really possible. Um 
but I think, you know, the very act of kneeling is in itself, you know, a particular act of devotion. So, uh, I don't think, you know, you don't, you're not mandated to bow when you're, when you're already kneeling. I certainly wouldn't tell you not to, but, uh, I, w- I don't think you have to either. It's one of those things where, I mean, there's always devotion, uh, recommended when we're coming forward to receive our Lord. Uh, the one thing I would say though, is to be careful at that moment, not to go so far in sort of like private devotional practices that, you know, as you're in the midst of this public worship to sort of like hold up the process of the distribution of Holy Communion, if that makes sense. So let's just take like an extreme example. Let's say, you know, and don't, I mean, I'm, I'm amazed, floored that our Lord comes to us in the Blessed Sacrament. Um, but in the same way that like I laid prostrate at my ordination, I can't do that before receiving communion. It just wouldn't be appropriate, you know, in the midst of the mass as it needs to continue to flow. Now, you know, is that an understandable response in the presence of our Lord? Well, sure. But in the midst of, you know, the public, uh, coming together, worshiping our Lord at mass, we need to kind of keep things moving. So I would say as you kneel, that's in a, it's a very appropriate and beautiful way to show your devotion. If you're not able to kneel, uh, you know, to bow still before you receive our Lord in the blessed sacrament, um, I think are, are, are wonderful ways to show that devotion. Yeah. And as you said, we have to just be aware of logistics. Exactly. I mean, sometimes, you know, different churches have different logistics you have to work with. Obviously with our ultra rail now and kneeling to receive communion, you can actually stay kneeling for a little while and you're not holding anyone up because people are filling in down the rail. I know some other churches where maybe the priest is kind of up on a step. So if you knelt on the ground, it's harder for the priest to reach down and distribute communion. Also, sometimes you hold up the line. So logistically speaking, yeah, just got to be aware of that. And as you said, don't go overboard with the devotion that you kind of hurt the logistics in some ways. Yeah, and that's the thing, and I, you know, just to recognize where you are. And, you know, there's there's certainly a time for a private devotion, too, you know, when you're on your own. And I kind of like to point that out to people when they sort of get annoyed with, like, the noise in Mass, let's say. Um, I heard someone say recently, quoting, actually, the Protestant pastor, um, who uh, the Protestant pastor felt bad when a mother left the church with her crying child. And he came up to her after Mass and said, the only thing that's harder to take than children crying in the midst of, you know, prayer and worship is not hearing any. And I think it's a really good point. It's like, I think, you know, kids learn how to go to mass by going to mass and the sound of them crying, making noise in mass, of course, within reason. If the kid is going absolutely berserk, fine, you can go out for a little while, you know, but a little bit of noise, especially from a a one, two-year-old, that's what one and two-year-olds do. And now granted, I get it. It's not the same as like silent adoration and devotion, but that's what happens at public worship at mass. I mean, you're going to have some more noise. And that's one of the reasons why we leave the church unlocked most of the time. It's quiet in there a lot of the time. And so if, you know, the noise and things like that kind of get to you at a normal Sunday mass, okay, come back, come back another time during the week. There's nothing that says you're only allowed one hour in the church a week. Come back a lot of the time. I know they're kind of jumping off here from uh, can you or should you bow at the communion rail, but just to recognize, I mean, there's kind of a difference uh, between when we're together for that public act of worship as the community in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass and other time throughout the week when you can come in and have a little bit more freedom in the way in which you show devotion. 
Yeah, and I think that's a really important distinction because I think some people get caught up with the private devotion of prayer at Mass. Yeah. It's important to have private of devotion course. of prayer at Mass, but we still have to remember that we, this is the public devotion where we are all together, and if you can't pray perfectly at Mass, as Father said, yeah. come back. And, and it's both and, you know? I mean, I really enjoy one-on-one time with my brother. Like, when we get just, like, time, and I've gone up to visit him, and he has a bumper pool table in his basement. It's great. Like, we hang out. We're playing. It's it's awesome. But that time I have with my brother one-on-one is different than the time I have with my brother and his whole family. Um, both are good. Both are important. But it's, you know, there is a distinction in what we're talking about and the way that we're interacting. Um, it's a little bit different, but it doesn't mean I'm just going to cut off one because I like one or the other better at certain times, too. And there's some times when, I mean, Mass can be so beautiful here and, like, the whole community is engaged and everybody's responding so beautifully. It's like it's it's loud when it should be loud and it's silent when it should be silent. And just there's this, like, awesome feeling in the midst of the Mass. It's like you're being lifted up to heaven. And then there are other times, it's like in private prayer, where some things like that can happen. And then, of course, there's the reverse of both, where it can feel completely dry in public worship or in private worship. The thing is, it's like, it's a relationship. You keep them both going along the way. Yeah, just like our relationship with our family, it's a relationship with God. And we have to um, foster that relationship in the same way. Exactly. Cool. Uh, So the next question um, also has to do with some of the rubrics, if you will, at Mass. Uh, The question states... Rubric said there should be a prominent crucifix visible to all the faithful near the altar. Is there any way our large crucifix could be hung in the sanctuary? So if you're not familiar with uh, Sacred Heart, we have a large crucifix on the back wall, kind of in the left transept by the Mary altar. Um, and the person asking the question is basically saying, could we hang that up in a more prominent spot so it's a larger crucifix for people to see? Sure. Um... I'll say this, you know, I'm I am no architectural expert. I know we have some priests in our diocese that really have a good eye for, you know, with church construction. I know Father Reed has done some beautiful things at St. Anne's. Um, I know Father Winslow really, you know, knows how to like see a space and know how to do certain things with it. Um, I think, you know, when you look at our sanctuary, and I'll just say, A, I love that crucifix. It's the crucifix from the church down on Fulton Street here in Salisbury. Um, it's gorgeous, and I mean, I, I, it would be a wonderful crucifix to have, yes, in the center of the sanctuary. Um, but with our high altar, uh, you know, we have that beautiful statue of the Sacred Heart. Um, I will say this, because, you know, I've heard criticism, you know, sometimes, and I, and I think it's appropriate criticism. It's like you go to some churches and they have what is sort of casually referred to as a resurucifix, you know, where it's like the, you have a cross and then Jesus is like in front of it risen. Um, and sometimes I almost feel like it's like the wounds aren't even present. And it's just, it's, it's like the sacrifice is kind of taken out of it. The thing that I do love about our sacred heart image is you'll notice his heart is pierced. So are his hands and feet. I mean, you see the price that our Lord paid. And I will say this too, just below that big, beautiful image of the Sacred Heart, we do have a crucifix prominently displayed. Is it as big as the Sacred Heart image? No, it's not. Um, But it's there, and it's right above the tabernacle. Um, And at least from my opinion, and as I said, I'm no artistic expert. This is not my particular, you know, specialty, so to speak. 
I don't see how we could move that crucifix to our sanctuary. Because I think if you somehow suspended it from the ceiling of that, you would just be blocking the image of the Sacred Heart. And I think we already have, for lack of a better term, once again, I'm no architectural expert, I think we have enough things going on you know, in the sanctuary that if we were to try to move that crucifix from, frankly, the otherwise blank wall that it's on, um, not only would it leave a blank wall there, but I think it would just it would be too busy in the sanctuary, too many things to look at. And we already technically have two, you know, sort of prominently displayed crucifixes, one on the high altar above the tabernacle, one on the main altar that I get to look at as I'm celebrating mass. Um, the processional crucifix is off kind of hidden to the side. So you couldn't really include that one as far as prominently displayed. But, um, you know, I'm grateful we have the crucifix in the church. The only other place, frankly, I would consider moving it. And this is just me speaking off the cuff is as you stand in the sanctuary. So where I stand is I offer the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. Like below the choir loft, above the doors, I could see hanging it there, frankly, so I can look at it during Mass. Um, I do love that crucifix. And sometimes I look over at, at it as I preach. The, on, a, on a certain sort of devotional side, I like that that beautiful crucifix is facing the statue of our Blessed Mother. Um, it provides a nice area right over there. I think mirror image from where the crucifix is on the other side, the St. Joseph side, we just have a blank wall there. I don't know what we should do with that at some point or if we do anything. Um, but I, I don't really see moving it at this point. Um, I, told, I, I understand where the person is coming from, really, um, because I agree. I love uh, centralized, beautiful crucifix. Um, but I think for this church in particular, it just wouldn't really make sense to move it. Yeah, and if you think about some of the grandest churches in the world, the crucifix is not always the central thing to look at. If True. you think about, um, Father wrote a letter about the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C. I mean, the crucifix in there is fairly small. I think it they is. have one on the altar and maybe another one located someplace else, but that's not the main thing that you're looking at. But obviously, all of the art is helping you focus on the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass and what is happening at uh, Mass. So I think while the crucifix is important and it does need to be prominent in a certain spot, as the rubrics say, I think there's so much more that our church is doing and many churches are doing to still lift our minds up to the realities that are happening. Absolutely. And, you know, and I'd be interested to look at the absolute, like the rubrics on you know, the crucifix being in the exact center of that. Because I will say, you know, I followed Father uh, John Putnam, and he's not one for skirting rubrics. So I, I, I'm sure that we are in compliance with rubrics for building churches. Um, but I do understand the concern. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, like, you know, uh, questioning the concern there. Um, because I do get it. And in some ways, I wish that that crucifix was located in a place that was easier to look upon and meditate. Because to look at it in our church... You either have to, have to be standing where I stand when I'm preaching, or you sit in the pew and turn around, which is not the easiest thing to do. So maybe it's something we have to look at as far as where, you know, if, if it needs another place at some point, maybe that we need to look at. But I just don't see it in the sanctuary itself in this particular church. I agree, Father. So the next question also relates to uh, Mass and how we celebrate the Mass here at Sacred Heart. Uh, the question asks, lately you have been seeing more in Latin at all the Masses as opposed to just special occasions. Is there a specific reason? 
Now, I do know since we've entered the season of Advent, mm -hmm. um, you have been singing more of the Mass parts in Latin, but this specifically was kind of asked uh, before Advent started. I think this date was November 9th. Okay. Um, so you can rewind your mind a little bit and maybe uh, speak to the Latin Mass parts at Mass. Sure. The main time, at least the way that we've been doing it here, just logistically speaking, is I know on Wednesday nights, uh, I like to chant the Latin Mass parts, so the Sanctus, uh, the Memorial Acclamation, the Mysterium Fidei, um, and the Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God. Uh, I, I really like those, and I will tell you, it's like, you know, there are some things, like some prayers, you just know so well, it's like they're a part of you. Um, I don't I'm not able to chant those mass parts in English in the same way that I can in Latin. Um, it is, you know, the the traditional long-standing language of the church. I don't know it well. I wish that I did know it better. And at some point, I probably need to to keep studying it better as long as as well as Spanish. Um, but those are parts that I know know well. And also, I know I will say more than the Latin. Honestly, I chant Greek a little bit at most masses. Now I haven't been during. Um, Advent, but the Kyrie eleison, that's actually Greek, um, the, the Lord have mercy. But basically my main reasoning on Wednesday, we have a little more time. And rather than just speaking everything, um, I like to, you know, make it last just a little bit longer. Mass is at 5.15, most people aren't rushing off to work. We're still done in what, like 35, 40 minutes? Uh, but just to kind of, you know, add that little bit of extra um, solemnity. Uh, one other thing we do at the Wednesday evening Mass that I don't at the other daily Masses uh, when people need to get to work is uh, I omit, typically on Monday, Tuesday, and Friday, the optional sign of peace because you don't actually have to do the sign of peace. And just because, A, daily Masses is not as crowded, people are a little more spread out, there's more people on Wednesday night, but also we have a little more time. So we go ahead and do the optional sign of peace on Wednesday and just... You know, with the time that we have, adding in a little bit more of devotion and prayer, and just kind of pulling from my, my own experience and knowledge, I know those prayers well. And I remember John Paul II kind of lamenting one time that, you know, folks from the United States don't know the parts of the Mass in Latin as well. And I mean, it is our international language of the church, so at least some of the basics, um, it's just, it's good to know them and to know them well. So that's kind of where that's come from. Yeah, I think with the international language of the church, as you mentioned, um, sometimes we have more of our Hispanic community participating mm -hmm. in Mass. Yeah. And obviously, if we do the Latin Mass parts, it's the universal language of the church. Yeah. So we don't have many opportunities to have a true bilingual Mass. And honestly, I don't think a true bilingual Mass even flows that well all the mm -hmm. time. So when we can throw in those Latin Mass parts, I think it's nice to say, this is none of our native languages, so we can all kind of unify in these small ways in the language of the church. Exactly. Awesome. So the next question has a little bit to do with what we spoke about at our last Q&A. Um, so at the last Q&A, we got several questions on indulgences. Mm -hmm. So if you haven't listened to that last Q&A, like I said, it's on SoundCloud. You can go back and listen to that. But this question, having again to do with indulgences... Um, it says, who established what an indulgence requires of us? So maybe we should first talk briefly about what an indulgence requires of us, and then maybe speak on how that was established. Wow. Like, so who established it? Um, I guess it, 
That's a good question. And once again, and actually, if you refer to the the live Q and A, uh, Michael had some much better answers than I did, frankly. Um, you know, on indulgences, and frankly, I need to study up on them more. I try to get an indulgence every day um, that I can, and part of that requires going to confession. And Michael and I have actually looked this up recently. It's like I'd say about you know to try to get to confession at least once a month. That basically keeps you in within about a twenty day before or after period of when you are uh, performing the action necessary for the indulgence. Uh, The other things required are receiving the Blessed Sacrament, praying for our Holy Father for his intentions, and then some specific act. Now there there are some, and this is the thing, I'm no expert, um, and I know there's an incridian on indulgences. So shortly after the question and answer last time, I was doing a little bit of research because indulgences is just a very yeah, fun it's, thing it's, to it look is. up. Absolutely. And I found a document released by the Vatican. Uh, it's called the Incridian of Indulgences. And it actually lists every single approved indulgence by the church. So specifically what these requirements are relating to are the plenary indulgences, which uh, release all temporal punishment um, from sin. Um, So that's where these requirements come into play. If you're specifically looking at a partial indulgence, a partial indulgence can be earned for hundreds and hundreds of different things, but these uh, different requirements aren't included with a partial indulgence. Um, So going to confession, uh, receiving the Most Holy Eucharist at Mass, praying for the Holy Father, doing this whatever the special act is, and then um, also being free from all occasion of sin. Or all attachment. Attachment, attachment to, to, sin, to sin. Excuse me. Being free from all attachment to sin. Um, those are all the um, requirements, if you will, to receive that plenary indulgence. And I'll tell you, I think one of the things, and this is also partially just me talking to Michael in our midst of planning. You know, I think, uh, you know, I, I want to study more about indulgences to understand them better. But, you know, part of it, and Michael explained it very well at the Q&A, and I recommend going back and listening to it. But, you know, it has to do with sort of like, you know, making reparation for something, you know, like serious sins. You know, so uh, I think the example he used was you're playing baseball uh, with your friends in the street, hit the ball, you break the neighbor's window, um, you know, and then you go and you say you're sorry to the neighbor, and they say, you know, you're forgiven. But the thing is, it doesn't just end there. I mean, a window has been broken. Like, you've got to make satisfaction for that. You know, you need to do something to, you know, go out there, earn the money, fix the window. Um, And part of this is, like, you know, making reparation for sins because there's a lot of bad stuff going on out there. And we've, you know, each of us, individually, me, John Eckert, I have contributed to some of that by my sins, you know. And so... To earn indulgence, it's like, look, I'm going to try to do something, say, extraordinary, extraordinary, outside of the ordinary, to try to make up for some of these effects of sin. And, you know, I think the more we can provide for the opportunity to do that around here, the better off we are. I know one of them is praying the rosary in front of the Blessed Sacrament. Is that a plenary or partial? So it's actually not even in front of the Blessed Sacrament. It's in a church or as a family or religious community. So really it's praying the rosary really in a public display is that plenary indulgence. So in the Incaridian, there are four plenary indulgences that you can technically speaking earn every day. So you can only earn one plenary indulgence per day, but there are four that have no like extra special thing that you have to do. And those four things are praying the rosary, as we said, in a church 
as a family or with the religious community, spending 30 minutes in front of the Blessed Sacrament in adoration, spending 30 minutes reading scripture, or saying the stations of, of the cross with approved stations. Um, and so those are the four things that ultimately you can pick one of those four every single day. And if you're going to Mass on a daily basis, if you're praying for the Holy Father on a daily basis, if you've gone to confession plus or minus 20 days... So about every three weeks. About every three weeks. And you're remember, we have confession every day but Sunday here. Um, so there's there's plenty of opportunities to keep this up. And maybe we just need to nail home some of the details of this. But those four, I mean, technically, they're pretty easy to do here. And I'll tell you, we have a public... Uh, I know, I personally lead a public recitation of the rosary every first Saturday at 7.30ish and every third Saturday after the 8 o'clock Mass um, with our group, the Luminaries of Holy Mary. Um, I love it. It's one of my favorite things. I love getting to lead the rosary, and I just don't get to do it that often. But we have the rosary led publicly before basically all of our Sunday Masses. Um, I don't, and heck, if someone comes up to me and says, Father, I'd like to start praying the rosary every day at noon in the church. Anybody wants to join me? Fine, great, let's do it. And like we can, we can do other things. As far as I'm concerned, we can have the rosary being prayed here perpetually. You know, I mean, it's let's let's go for it. Um, you know, and and the other thing that we do is a, it's 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 different than indulgences, but at least related. You know, the five first Saturday devotions. Um, you know, comes out of our, our Blessed Mother and our Lord's revelations from Fatima to Sister Lucia. You know, about five first Saturdays, the four things involved. Uh, receiving the Blessed Sacrament, um, in and all of these things with the intention of making reparation for sins against the Immaculate Heart of Mary. So receiving the Blessed Sacrament, praying the Rosary, going to confession, doesn't have to be on the day of. It's once again the, the sort of like 20-day rule. But try to keep it in the week, I think is what we normally do. But I love the 20-day rule. It actually <laughs> helps so much especially as a priest here in confessions. And finally, 15 minutes of meditating on one of the mysteries of the rosary. We provide for all of that every first Saturday here at Sacred Heart. You know, it's like, it's it's beautiful. I mean, the things that, that are attached to all this, and, you know, it comes from, you got to put a little extra effort in. And I know with some plenary indulgences, like the Holy Father will, you know, say, you know, one of making, like through the Holy Doors a few years mm-hmm. back, um, during the Year of Mercy, um, you know, the Holy Father can declare uh, certain plenary indulgences and all those different uh, requirements apply. With, the, with the, the big four Michael just talked about, I'm not sure where it first came from. I'm sure a, a holy, one of the Holy Fathers along the way. Yeah, but that is, those are stated in the Encruding. So sure. all those indulgences they list. They even talk about, I think, earlier on in the document how those are the four yeah. that you can earn... Any day. And the thing is, I mean, you know, we're in a state of spiritual battle all the time. I mean, you know, everybody's soul is on the line. And the thing is, if you think back on your life, and I'm sure we all have this, there are things that we've done that don't add to the betterment of our brothers and sisters in Christ. What indulgences ultimately do, it's a chance to make reparation for all that stuff. It's doing something... You know, and hopefully, you know, in some ways, like, I hope the praying the rosary daily becomes the ordinary for you. Um, but, you know, yeah, step out of the comfort zone, do something a little extra. And because we know it's like most things in life, to get them done, you got to do a little more work. That's just part of it. And don't we all really want a faith that calls us to more rather than just, you know, settling with us just being, you know, mediocre? I, I don't want that. And heck, if you look at, revelation you know if you are lukewarm i will spit you out of my mouth um don't be lukewarm 
you know, strive for these indulgences. It's a good thing to uh, to work for all the time. So I think we're li- really getting at here is go out and save souls. Yeah, just do it. It's it's great. It's a good thing for you to do, and you'll be happier. So I, I, I will be happier. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll be happier as your pastor, too, and as a fellow believer, follower, disciple of Jesus Christ. That is very true. Won't we all? I hope so. So the next question goes on to a totally different topic, um, but I think this is probably the best question we have here personally, and I'm interested to hear your answer. Um, How much time is spent learning about human emotion and psychology during the education of a priest? Hmm. Um, Formal education? We had a semester. I'm actually looking at one of the textbooks right now. Um, up on my bookshelf, uh, one semester of pastoral counseling, uh, with, at the Josephinum where I went to school at the time with, uh, Deacon, uh, Dr. Phil Pellucci, um, who, who did a great job. I mean, basically like looking at the, you know, just psychological sciences and, you know, what we can do, how we can help. Um, I remember vividly, uh, part of our like final exam for that class was going to his practice and he had different staff members of his coming in, um, sort of you know, mimicking different uh, just issues, problems. And I had a lady who was suicidal. And basically, you know, he wanted to see how we were going to react. And basically, you know, my whole thing was, and it was funny because he didn't tell us we could do this, but I picked up the phone in the office and like pretended to call the secretary. I was like, hey, you know, hey, and I didn't say Sharon, but let's just say, hey, Sharon, um, can you, you know, can you just uh, do me a favor? Go ahead and, uh, you know, let, and you know, I said like somebody's name, like we're going to need to get Mrs. Uh, Johnson uh, a ride to the hospital and, you know, just kind of like working with something just to, you know, make sure that we could at least understand and start to see certain psychological problems, issues, because, you know, I think part of that, the big thing in that class was to help us to see what we're not able to do, like as priests, like how far you are able to help some people and to recognize when we're not and to recommend counseling for them. Now, that being said, obviously there's a spiritual element. I mean, confession is incredibly powerful. And it has immense psychological benefits. You know, sometimes there are psychological issues that I need to say, look, we need to find you some help with counseling. And um, I think that was one of those classes that helped a lot with, yeah, like I said, helping us to see what we don't know and what we can't do. Um, and at the same time, to try to help us to find good references to send, send people on. Um, I would say eight years into priesthood, um, like a lot of things, experience is one of the best teachers. Um, it's really hard to get a lot of it in the classroom, especially when, I mean, you know, remember, I didn't go to school to be a psychologist. I went to school to become a priest. And, you know, it's, it's six years of formation, which is not a short amount of time. And that's after four years of college. Um, you know, they fit in everything they can. Um, and I, I think, you know, they gave us what they needed to give us with that particular um, topic. However, I think it sort of behooves me um, as a pastor to continue to study, you know, and and to look at, you know, just different um, psychological sciences to try to read up and and understand things. I'll tell you, uh, Father Benedict Rochelle has some good books on uh, pastoral psychology. Um, And, you know, I mean, he was he was wonderful in so many ways. Um, So, you know, like anything in seminary, they kind of get us going, point us in the right direction. But we have to sort of continue our education as well. 
Yeah, and I can see how important it is to have that discernment of when is it your area of expertise with the spiritual life, or when is it something that really needs medical help? Absolutely. I know there's a lot of questions. Um, this is more of the extreme, you know, when people are talking about exorcisms and demonic possessions mm -hmm. and things like that. You know, how much of this is actually, you know, spiritual warfare in a demon, or how much of this is, you know, a slew of different medical situations that there could be. Yeah. And having that just understanding of the difference, I think, is really important. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, and the thing is, the I think part of what makes it difficult, um, and you have to have discernment, you know, it's not black and white, as those things can be intertwined, you know, and, and so uh, that's where you have to be discerning and be praying with people. And, and don't get me wrong, I mean, I know miracles can happen. Uh, great things happen in the confessional. I mean, the power of the sacraments is amazing, but mental illness is a real thing. And so to be able to recognize when that's part of this and present and when I can recommend uh, counseling and just know, you know, how far my own training goes and when I have to point people on towards other things. So Yeah, and that's very important for really all of us to discern, is, sure. you know, when something is in our area of expertise mm -hmm. or when it needs to be handed on to somebody else. Absolutely, and you know, and part of that is just humility. Um, and that's, <laughs> once again, you learn, it's more on-the-job training, I think, than anything else. But I was grateful uh, Deacon Pellucci, who taught us in seminary, was was wonderful, and I'm there are many a time that I think back to that class and, and just different things that he taught us and that I learned and that I, I really appreciate. And like I said, in his, uh, being a permanent deacon, too, I mean, he really respected you know, what what we were doing, what we were striving for, and then brought his own professional expertise uh, to us as well. Perfect. Well, that <laughs> sounds like a great class. Thank God. So the next question um, is focusing primarily on prayer. Um, the question reads, in prayer, how do you know that you are completely in the presence of God? Well, in a certain sense, we're always in the presence of God. So I will say... <laughs> One of those little phrases that can be kind of annoying sometimes, at like, you know, like we're, you're getting together and, you know, it's time to start a prayer and someone says, okay, let's place ourselves in the presence of God. Yeah, the thing is, you're never out of the presence of God. You are currently at this very moment, wherever you are, I don't know if you're listening to this 75 years after recording this in 2018, which you're probably not, but I'll throw it out there anyway. You're in the presence of God. I mean, you can't be out of it. Um... So, so there's that aspect. What I would say, I mean, compare it once again, like in anything with relationships. Um, when you're talking to someone, you know, there's a way to have a conversation when you're not totally present, right? You may be there physically, but you're looking at your phone or, you know, or you're thinking about what's coming up next on your agenda or some issue that's going on or just... I don't know, daydreaming about the dessert you're going to have the night after after dinner. You know, like there's there's so many things. You know what it's like to be present to someone and you know what it's like to be distant. And the physical aspects, you know, it, it can that's almost irrelevant sometimes. And I'd say the same is kind of true in prayer, you know. Um, on a certain level, though, I would say don't try to white-knuckle your time in prayer like I must be focused on the coronation of Mary right now. Okay. The thing is, yeah, I mean, there are times, you know, meditating on that when you're praying the fifth uh, glorious mystery. However, you know, if, if your mom is sick in the hospital and, you know, you can't muster up visions of our blessed mother and all of her glory in heaven, 
okay, fine. Bring your, your, your earthly mother to our blessed mother, who is queen of heaven and earth, and continue to ask her for help. You know, like sometimes I think some of those distractions, um, I think we're too hard on ourselves sometimes as though, you know, we should be like robots to just like, okay, now we're on this program and I'm completely focused. That's not the way we are. I mean, uh, on, what day was it? Tuesday. Uh, so I got an emergency call. Michael was very kind to field it here in the office and get it to me. And I went and it anointed um, a young woman uh, on her deathbed, basically, at the uh, ICU here at the hospital. Um, that was about just a little before 5 o'clock. I had 7 p.m. Mass that night for the celebration of Our Lady of Guadalupe. I was holding that lady, you know, on my mind and in my heart as I was celebrating that Mass. Um, the Mass intention that night was for the repose of the soul of Robert Benton. I was, of course, offering it for him, praying for him, but, you know, to pretend that you know, being at someone's deathbed two hours earlier, and then I'm just going to, like, put that out of my mind completely two hours later. I mean, that's not, you know, reasonable, really. I mean, I'm a human being. It affects me. And where better to take it than to our Lord? And I don't think, you know, he would be in heaven saying, wait, why are you not totally focused on the gospel of the visitation? How dare you? No. I mean, he loves all of his children. He wants us to bring these things to him. Now, are there things that we can be thinking about sometimes in the midst of Mass we shouldn't be? Or intentionally thinking about things? It's like, okay, I'm just going to check out now and think about the Panthers. That's stupid. Don't do that. Okay? Um, unless you're like the parent of one of the Panther players and you're concerned about their health. Um, but don't, you know, don't, don't just, you know, intentionally let your mind wander, so to speak. We all know what daydreaming is like. But at the same time, if, if there's an issue that's popping into your mind, something that you need to bring to our Lord bring it, you know, and that's not being unpresent to him. That's recognizing the fact that you're in a relationship with him and you should bring things to him. He's your king. He loves about you. He cares about you and wants you to bring those, those thoughts, those prayers to him. Um, and then, and I would say, especially to like in praying the rosary, relate them to the mystery. Like I said, if it's your sick mother in the hospital, bring her to the queen of heaven who cares about her very much, frankly, even more than you do. So, um, you know, be present in the way you would be in other relationships, I would say. Um, don't be rude to God, you know, if that, if that makes sense. But he wants to know about your, your issues, your, you know, what's going on in your life. So don't be afraid to tell him. Yeah. Like when I talk to my mom, um, I try to call her pretty much every day. I tell her about things that happen at work that she really has no tie to, you know, other than I'm her son and I sure. did these things at work. But she, because of our relationship, wants to be present to me and understand what's going on. And then after a while, she's like, oh, yeah, you know, this person in the office, or how was this meeting you told me about, or whatever happened, what was the conclusion to that meeting two weeks ago? She remembers these things just because she's present to me and I'm yeah. present to her. And obviously, God is the same way with that relationship. He just has the advantage that he knows everything already. Yeah. Um, but we still get to participate in that relationship with him. Absolutely. And he cares about all the people in your life even more than you do. Um, and, you know, for for you to bring that to him and to talk to him, mean, it's, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, it's part of participating in all of this. I'll tell you just one little, like, illustration of this that I really love. Um, and I was sharing this with somebody the other day. 
for the first time in a long time, I think basically like the first time since I've been an adult, I watched the movie It's a Wonderful Life on Monday night. We had the snow day. And uh, the beginning of that movie, when it's like you're seeing um, Bedford Falls, like, you know, from above, and you, like, are hearing all these people praying for George Bailey, there was something so beautiful about that. Like, you know, his children, his wife, um, you know, different people around the city, like all these folks praying for him, offering up these prayers you know, it's like, gosh, I wonder what it's like, you know, to see from God's perspective what that's like. And for us to add into, you know, that sort of like symphony of prayer going up to heaven. Now, he can hear each individual note and cares about each individual note more so than the most trained conductor. Um, And yet every single note matters in a big eternal way. And you have an opportunity right now at this moment to pray and to offer that up. And it's, it's just awesome when you think about yourself in the midst of, like I said, this, the symphony of prayer, so to speak. That was also one of my favorite Christmas movies too. I have not seen it recently. And I'm a little sad that I haven't. My wife really likes a white Christmas and we watch that one pretty much every single year, but I think I need to bring a wonderful life back in. And I will be totally honest. You know, I don't watch as much TV anymore. I used to watch a lot, a lot of movies. I mean, I watched, Tons of The Simpsons growing up. I'd say up until about the 11th season, which I think you can objectively say the show just wasn't any good anymore. Um, but I watched it all the time. I used to watch a lot of movies. Basically, when I, when I went into seminary, I kind of unplugged more and more. So it's funny to me now, when I watch a movie, it affects me so much more. You know, it's like It's like not eating candy for a year. And then you have, like, one piece after. It's like, whoa, like, one piece. It, you know, didn't really stand up before. Now it's like, whoa, it's so sweet. Um, so watching It's a Wonderful Life on Monday night, I was I was crying at the end. I mean, I'll be honest. I mean, now granted, I'm a crier anyway. But, man, it hit me so hard. It was just, it's such an amazing movie. I was I'm so not happy. a crier father, and I still tear up at that uh, movie, that, so that makes you, me feel better. Okay, good. You have permission. Michael, who's made of stone, cries too. That's good to know. <laughs> All right, we have three more questions. Two of them relate. One of them does not. Would you like the one that does not relate first or the two that do relate first? Let's do a sandwich. <laughs> Let's do a sandwich. All right, that's how it's actually written on Woo-hoo! the paper, so we can do that. That sounds good. All right, so uh, this next question, I will admit, does not have the best grammar when okay. it, as written, so I'm going to read it as I think it's intended okay. to be uh, stated. Um, this specifically has to do with uh, marriage. Why is the church allowing... People who uh, get married outside of the church. So, hold on, let me start over. Like I said, it wasn't really phrased well. So, this specifically, this question really has to do with divorce and remarriage. Okay. Um, so, really, it's, the question is asking, in some countries in our world, the church is allowing people who are divorced and remarried to receive communion even though it's my, it is against the church teaching. Um, and then the, really the question then asks, doesn't that make the church a lie? So taking this statement of there are some places in our world that are probably not following the church teaching on divorce and remarriage and receiving communion as clearly as it should be, and essentially this person is concerned about the church as a whole. The whole thing falling apart. Yes. Okay. Um, I would say no, it doesn't make the church a lie. Um, the church does not teach that, you know, those who are divorced and remarried 
um, are free to go to communion. Now, however, remember, this is, this is ultimately where this comes from, um, or where, where the sin is, right? The sin that we're trying to avoid here is adultery. So if you are married to someone, and then you get divorced, okay, remember, we don't allow for divorce in the Catholic Church. So in the eyes of the Church, unless you have what's called an annulment, you are technically still married to that first person. And so, um, you know, in the eyes of the church, we see you as married to that person. So, if you go and get civilly married to someone else, you're not free to do that. You're technically still bound to that first person. So, the thing is, it's like, I'm trying to think what the right terminology is, but it's like that second quote-unquote marriage it's kind of like a fiction as far as in the eyes of the church. It's like you're just, you're living with someone else. So if you were to have sex with that person, that is adultery. You're not technically married to them. Therein lies the sin. Um, and that's why in Familiaris Consortio, which is a document that came out under uh, Pope St. John Paul II, you know, he says like in certain extreme, you know, extenuating sort of circumstances, if that in that, let's say that quote unquote second marriage if they decide to live as brother and sister, even if legally married, if they're not sleeping together, they're living as brother and sister, then they would be okay, of course, to guard against scandal for others, you know, like not, you know, guarding against like people thinking they're just living like a married couple and going to communion. Can't do, like, you shouldn't be doing that. You got to guard against that. But if you're not committing the sin of adultery, you're not living as man and wife, then you would be able to go to communion. So that's there. The other thing I would say, just because um, you are divorced, that doesn't mean you can't go to communion either. Okay, so some places, some things being allowed. All right, let's just say, I don't know, loose analogy. We'll see if this works. Once again, this is the first time I'm getting the, the, um, the questions. Um, let's just say there's a you know, police force in a certain town, and some of the police officers look the other way um, when someone's stealing. Like, they're taking kickbacks, they're allowing, you know, some stealing to go on. So those couple of police officers are allowing for that. Does that mean that all law and order is just a scam? No, it doesn't. It means that there's some who aren't doing what they ought to be doing. Um, not, you know, holding up the age-old teaching on the fact that stealing is wrong. Um, does that mean that all law is a sham? No, it doesn't. It means that somebody's not doing what they ought to be doing. Um, you know, <laughs> sometimes things aren't lived out perfectly in the world. Um, am I scandalized by it? Sure, of course I am, you know, and it, it stinks and I'm sorry. Um, the biggest thing I think each one of us has to do is recognize that, you know, in our particular place and part in this, and as far as we have a say over something, we need to do exactly what we know is right. And we need to follow that and follow it, you know, with, with, ready for this? Prudence, temperance, fortitude, and justice. We need to live out those cardinal virtues. Um, and that fortitude, that can be hard sometimes, especially when it's not popular to do those sort of things. Um, and of course, you do that coupled up with charity. I mean, it's not like the church's moral teaching is to beat people up who find themselves in a second marriage. Yeah, you know, sometimes bad marriages can happen to good people. I get that. And there are people who come to my office who, you know, didn't know the church's teaching, didn't know these things. We're going to walk through this. I've seen annulments happen and have gotten to convalidate what's called like blessing a marriage. It's been beautiful. It's been awesome to see what happens and like the healing that comes from that. But like most things in life, there's not just either a silver bullet, simple hallmark card level answer that just makes everything right. 
Um, and just because some people try to pretend that there is and just sort of pass that along doesn't mean that the actual teaching of the church is a fraud. Um, so I would say, yeah, I get it. Sometimes there's some scandalous stuff out there, but don't let that separate you from the eternal truth and teaching of the church. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember that the church as a whole is guided by the Holy Spirit. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Nope. Um, if the gates of hell can't prevail against the church, a couple bishops or a couple priests sure can't prevail against the church either. And we have to remember the church as a whole is guided by the Holy Spirit and protected the bride of Christ, but the people in the church are not always in the same state of grace. Exactly. And that's why, you know, here we are on December the 14th. We are, you know, 11 days from Christmas. Jesus Christ became one of us. You know, we need him. You know, and the, he becomes incarnate. He is with us and he continues to help us along the way. Um, and that's why we have to continue to cling to him each and every day and ask for that help and keep striving to bring all people to him. Beautiful father. I think that's exactly what uh, I think that's exactly what this person needs to hear. I hope so. I hope so. All right. So the sandwich. So now this one's totally off topic. Totally different. Um, as you requested, does Sacred Heart Catholic Church prioritize fundraising requests? There are three or four fundraisers at any time, in addition to the stewardship, the capital campaign, and multiple church offerings, all at the same time. So this specifically really has to do with us here at Sacred Heart and kind of how some of the management is done sure. here with us. Sure. Um, I will say, so every year the diocese puts out like a schedule of second collections. So there's certain things we're asked to participate in every year. Two of those are assessed, which means that we are given based on our offertory, our population, our past history, um, a particular goal that we must meet. So let's just say the goal is, you know, for, just to make things easy, $100. And let it's never that low. I wish it were. But let's just say it was $100 and we collected 70. That means that the church has to make up the additional 30 when it's in when it's an assessed collection. So we have to get to that number. Now, many of the other ones are not assessed. The only two that are, are the diocesan support appeal and the priest retirement fund. Um I, I get it on the second one, um, you know, with the priest retirement fund. I'm not going to be collecting on that for nearly double my current lifespan. So, you know, you know, just so you know, I'm not, I'm not like just jumping right into that. Uh, but, you know, those are the two that are assessed. There are many others throughout the year. Um, as far as anything else, I mean, I, there are certain things where, for example, we have our big parish festival for the Sacred Heart. Um, we try to raise some money for that throughout the year with different parties, with different sales, um, because, you know, it costs a little bit of money because we have a big parish feast, you know, and the fact that everybody eats, we have a beautiful devotional period all day with adoration. We have a big, beautiful procession. And then of course I was skeptical about this in the beginning. I'll be honest, but it's turned out to be like my favorite event of the year, the fireworks and everybody loved them, you know, and fireworks aren't cheap. Um, so rather than charging at the event, we do events throughout the year, and I just want to say, God bless Gretchen McGivergan, uh, who works so hard throughout the year to try to make that happen. Uh, Francisco Madrano does a lot, too, and both of them get tons of volunteers. I'd start naming them, but I'm afraid I'd leave someone out and upset them. So just all of our volunteers, you know who you are. I hope everybody else knows who you are, too, because you're just great. And, you know, it takes a lot of effort to do that. Um, 
you know, there's certain things like the Knights of Columbus will want to do, like, a, you know, the Tootsie Roll sale. Catholic Daughters will want to do a bake sale. I try to make it so it's not like a marketplace after every Mass. But, you know, it's like we have to try to, with our parish organizations, to allow for, you know, some collections and some things like that. Uh, I will say, really kind of steer clear of outside the parish organizations collecting just because, I mean, we got a lot of very involved people, and it's wonderful. But we just can't do, as, you know, I think as this question kind of implies, we already do a lot of things. And, you know, with our other organizations from the area, it's great. I hope that they do their fundraisers. I contribute to some of them, but not here at church because it's like we have enough of our organizations. And I realize without trying, without sounding too insensitive, I hope the pot is only so large, you know, you can't continue to go back to the same source. And as we all know so very well, and I promise I know probably most of all, we have a huge debt and we're working at paying at it. But the good news, um, We've made a lot of cuts in our expenses. We've really been very disciplined here in the office to the point that I don't have to write a letter to ask for help to make the ends meet this year. I'm going to be writing a letter, Michael and I, uh, beginning of next week to tell you we're doing great, actually. We've uh, cut cut back on those expenses to the point that we're going to dedicate our whole Christmas collection, the Christmas Eve and Christmas Day collection, to um, a big payment against the principal for the debt. So that's going to be great. And the fact that we're at that point is awesome. Um, You know, we're very cautious of what we're spending on. Um, So I would just say (laughs) I get it and I am sensitive to the fact and I try not to do second collections. And you may have noticed too, on a lot of our second collections, we just say if you have the envelope, if you want to donate to that, just put it in the first collection basket. Um, I do try to be very sensitive um, to how much we ask you for money. But at the same time, remember, you know, stewardship is a part of this. I mean, we are called to give and this place doesn't happen without your support. And I'll tell you, I, I support it too. I'm not going to ask you for money if I'm not going to tithe myself. Um, I'm, I'm a part of this with you. So know that that's there. And I will say too, you're not obliged to give to everything that's always asked for. You know, be generous for your own sake. You know, you don't want to go to heaven and, you know, have our Lord be like, what were you doing? Why did you hold on to that? And I will say too, back to It's a Wonderful Life. I noticed this when I was watching it the other day. Underneath his picture, underneath the picture of Peter Bailey in his office, it said, um, it's something like all that a man takes with him is that which he gives away. Remember that kind of stuff. So it's like when you do get annoyed with some of this, look, I get it. But remember, it's like, you know, overseeing a whole big family. And if you've got kids, you know, in college, in high school, in grade school, um, all of them doing their own things, wanting to raise money for this trip, this cause, this band camp, this sport, there's a lot of things. And there's a lot of people here. And there are needs that we have to raise for. There are wants that we need to raise for. For example, I mean... The fireworks, that's a want, not a need. However, I will say that the way that it brings the parish together, I'm almost on the point of calling it a need just because, gosh, it's like the best moment. Of the and year. if you're listening from another parish and have never had fireworks at your parish event before, we highly suggest oh looking gosh. into it because, as Fowler said, he was skeptical. I probably was even more skeptical than you because that's just yeah. my nature sure. is to be a little bit more skeptical and I still haven't, unfortunately, attended the feast because I'm always on vacation at that point of the year. 
But just the beauty and the love that people have of the fireworks now, I haven't even seen it myself. But there's no way we're getting rid of them. It's, it's unbelievable. And I just remember, because when we first did it, uh, it was the end of a very challenging year around here. It was probably one of the most challenging in my priesthood, if not my life. We had a lot of, just we'll say curveballs, for lack of a better term. And just that moment of everybody together on that parking lot, and just, it was, and after a day of adoration and, you know, the procession, I mean, it's all tied together, but it was just like this awesome exclamation point, and everybody's sitting there looking up, and it was just glorious. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's just, there's a lot of things that go into it. And remember, I mean, it's like we all have our part to play in the parish. And there's a reason why I have a finance council, a parish council, a wonderful staff. You know, so a lot of different voices go into how we make these decisions. They're prudential decisions, which means that there's always room for different ways of looking at it. And the way that you, the person asking the question, might handle it differently than I, sure, of course. But, you know, like anything, you got to make a decision. And, you know, I'm sure... At some point or another, decisions I've made, you know, have upset this person or that person, either because we asked for it or we didn't. But we just have to keep striving to do the best we can for the whole parish. And on a personal note, I will say from the bottom of my, of my heart, thank you to everyone who donates to here at Sacred Heart Catholic Church for all that we have and all that we can do. And on a, like I said, a personal note, for my salary, sure. you know, I mean, the what you put in the collection basket pays us here at the church staff, and you are what makes my dream come true, being able to work for a Catholic church as a professional career. I mean, when I told my parents I was going to go to Belmont Abbey College to get a theology degree, I don't think either of my parents were terribly excited in that life choice. But in some ways, thank you to the generosity of the parish and just the ability to say, look, it, I got a degree in theology, and I'm able to actually make it a career and to work for a church and help all those people here. And that's just a great gift to have on a personal note. That's wonderful. And I will tell you personally, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for paying his salary because <laughs> I couldn't do it by myself. I mean, obviously, thank you for paying mine too. Um, but, you know, it's like it takes a whole big team to make this whole thing work. Um, volunteers too, absolutely. And thank God for our volunteers. But, you know, I mean, people need to be able to support their families and to make, you know, a 1,200 family parish um, work, it, it takes a lot of effort. And, um, and I'm grateful for the, the good people we have here. And I promise we take, I mean, essentially every penny seriously. Because I know, I mean, some of that might be the widow's might. And, you know, even if it doesn't look like a lot, I know there are sacrifices being made. And we've got to take all of those seriously. And I promise that we do. And um, we take it seriously how we allow for asking and, you know, and, and different things like that. So, And as the Director of Operations here at Sacred Heart, I will vouch for Father with my <laughs> life that we do take all the money that comes in here very seriously and make sure it goes where it's most needed and where it will be most uh, best used. Yeah, absolutely. All right, last question. You ready, Father? I hope so. Okay, it's a little long one, so I'm going to read this one verbatim. When God did the first union of man and woman, Adam and Eve, he said that's why a woman would leave her parents and cling to her husband. But at that time, there was nobody other than Adam and Eve, so who exactly was he talking to? Does that make sense, or should I try to summarize that? Yeah, I that? think so. I mean, the, the thing is, I mean, the way that 
part of Genesis, and you know, I'm not like the wonderful, absolute awesome scripture scholar. Father George Byers in our our diocese, I believe his doctorate is on Genesis one to three, um, so he probably has a better answer than I do on this. But remember, it's like this is being written looking back. Um, you know, it's like at this point, here's our first parents. Their children are going to go through this. So I don't think this is talking, you know, necessarily about Eve leaving her particular parents and cleaving to Adam. But as it goes forward, that's why. That's why they're called this. That's the way this is going to work. Remember, you know, Genesis is not just like a blow-by-blow, you know, newspaper or biography account of the way things are done. I mean, you're talking about different literary ways um, of describing you know, uh, our first parents, creation, um, God's involvement, all of these things. And so to look at it, you know, I think uh, just from that overarching theological perspective is an important thing to do. Yeah, and I'm not a biblical scholar either, but I do know that every... We need to remember that the Bible is not a book full of chapters. It's really a compilation of books. So every single book that we read in the Bible was written... A lot of them were written by different people in a different literary style, in a different way. So one story might be purely historical, very much more of the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles. Very, very historical. Other accounts are stories. I mean, uh, Job. Many people don't believe that Job actually existed. That that really just is a pure story. Um, And then obviously with uh, Genesis, we have to remember that this is not a purely historical account either, that it's a, as Father said, you know, writing back on this account. Um, and in some ways, you know, there's still truth to it because it is scripture. But in some ways, we need to remember that each book is written in a different style and in a different way. And that's how we have to study scripture with that understanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, nothing that we've, either of us have just said says that that is not true. No, it's absolutely true. Um, but just remember, it's like, yeah, you, you're looking at, you know, a different genre and different things and um, different ways that things are communicated throughout that whole big collection of books that is the Bible. And the Bible is also timeless. I mean, mm-hmm. what was written, you know, thousand, couple thousand years ago, well, actually well more than a couple thousand years ago, but it still applies to us as fully as it did when it was first written and penned down. It's living and effective. So we need to remember that. So when, you know, with Genesis and this statement, that applies to you and me just as much as it applied to Adam and Eve, um, the first created human beings. Good stuff. Well, that wraps up our uh, Q&A, Father. Great job. You uh, did a great job, I thought, answering all those questions. I thought it was fun, and I hope this time, too. So last time, I think I slammed my hands on the armrests a lot. I was really trying to be cautious of not doing that. So hopefully you didn't get as many sound effects of me talking with my hands. I was trying to be very uh, specific. Yes, and I noticed that, Father. And if there's any background noises, we are in an office. As I was telling Father beforehand, we don't have one of those big red lights that we could turn on to say recording. I did put sticky notes on Father's window that say silence recording to try to let the staff here at the office know that 
we're doing our best. See, one more way that we are working on always being smart about our expenses. We don't need a silent on-air light. What we do need is two sticky notes, which, thank God, cost about half a cent. So, we have plenty of those in yes, the office. Yes, we do. We're doing okay on that on that front. So, fantastic. Well, to wrap us up, Father, why don't you close us with a prayer? Wonderful. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Most sacred heart of Jesus. Have mercy on us. Immaculate heart of Mary. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.